Uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 today. And uh, last, a uh, couple weeks ago, actually, uh, when we looked at the beginning of this passage, remember what we said, that this is a paradigm. Uh, it serves as a wonderful paradigm of how we sin, right? Uh, we saw last time that uh, we have here the first discussion about God, uh, right? Uh, and uh, we see that the woman is uh, tempted. Uh, thoughts uh, come into her mind that she entertains. And uh, you can listen to, to it from last time. But she ends up entertaining those thoughts, acting on that, uh, and she sins, and so does the man. Uh, and it uh, just goes to show you that uh, uh, God has given us the opportunity to make choices. Uh, but as human beings, we see that there is a, we have, uh, therefore, the opportunity to make the wrong choice. And the wrong choice they made, and the wrong choice we made, and we are stuck with the, uh, with the consequences of their wrong choice. Uh, and uh, that comes at the very end of today's, well, at the end of this chapter, <laughs> today's message, two weeks from today, three weeks, I don't know when. But, uh, but the consequences uh, of their uh, choice is what happens. And now today what we see is the first consequence, the initial consequences of their sin, okay, of their choice. Uh, and that begins in verse 8, okay? We have the initial consequences, then we have the, uh, the additional consequences uh, of their sin. So it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees uh, of, the, uh, of the garden. Okay? You know, it's interesting, there's so much devotional kinds of activity going on. Isn't it interesting that they hid among the trees? I mean, you know, you can eat any of, any of the tr trees are all over the place in this whole story, right? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I, you know, th then there's also in the middle, there's, there's the tree of life. Eat from all the trees, right? So they end up, they have one prohibition. They cannot handle the one prohibition, right? And so they sin having to do with a tree. Now they're hiding among the trees. Just, what does that mean? That's sometime late at night, we'll share a cup of coffee and some other beverage and, and talk about that. That's what, uh, that's what Midrash was made for. But anyway, uh, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the, of the day. Another thing that's just interesting is that it says Lord God. It doesn't just say God, not just the deity, but the covenant deity, the covenant loving God, the God of Israel, uh, yud heh vav -Hey, you know, Adonai Elohim, okay? He is the one who is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, okay? Uh, so he's among them. God is among them. And we see the first consequence of their sin. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay? Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Okay. So evidently, God isn't just 
walking around aimlessly, but the point is, is that he's looking for them. He's looking, where are they, right? Uh, and uh, uh, notice that God does not say, where are you hiding? He doesn't say, where are you hiding? Uh, in other words, already coming to the conclusion that they're hiding. He wants to draw something out of them. So he says, where are you? Where are you? But we can see what has happened. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Remember, the first thing that they saw is that they were naked, and, they're, and now they're ashamed, and they have to cover themselves, right? So there is this uh, sense of uh, awareness, very much uh, predominant awareness of themselves, and their shame causes them to hide from God. Right? That is the first consequence, hiding from God. And isn't that true for all of us? That the consequence of sin, or a consequence of sin, is hiding or being alienated from a God. But you see, the truth is that you can't hide from God. It just does not work. Right? There's some tremendous uh, passages uh, that really, uh, you know, that tell us that. Uh, for example, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 16, in verse 17, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Right? Uh, and so there, we can, as they say, you can run but you cannot hide, right? Then, of course, there is Psalm 139, another uh, a great passage about this fact that no one can hide from God. In Psalm 139, beginning in verse 7, Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. And then, of course, there is Jonah, right? Uh, who uh, certainly tried to hide from God. Uh, uh, he did not try to take a slow boat to China, but a faster boat to Spain. Uh, and uh, he ended up uh, just uh, in a place he didn't want to be, right? Uh, but God found him there, uh, and God finds us uh, wherever we may be. But we see here, this is what happens. They hid from God, but we could say they tried to hide uh, uh, from the presence of God, right? But God wants to know where they are. This is great. God does not, does not let them go. God does not say, well, I know what they did, and so forget them. Let's start over. After all, there's only two, you know? It's easier to, to knock them off and start over again, you know, uh, just start all over. Right? Let's go. Let's rewind to day six. Right? Uh, but that is not 
uh, uh, what happens. God says, where are you? And I will say that is indeed what God says to you and I. We suffer from these consequences of sin. And, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, in um, Solomon Schechter, Solomon Schechter's book, Aspects of Rabbinic Theology, I may have mentioned this before because it's one of my favorite footnotes ever, uh, but I have to paraphrase it. And he's talking about this in his book. Solomon Schechter is a conservative uh, Jewish uh, scholar uh, uh, known for everything from archaeology to theology. Uh, and uh, so he wrote this book called Aspects of Rabbinic Theology. Fantastic little, little book. Uh, and so he's talking about this issue of sin and the ramifications of sin. And he says, you know, unlike, unlike the church, this is basically what he says, unlike the church, we don't have, in Judaism, he says, we don't have a doctrine of original sin. We don't have to worry about that because we, everyone sins. And, and we all face the consequences of sin. And I thought that was a great, a great little footnote there. That, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can be concerned about the origins, but I don't know anybody who would say they're sinless, right? So we all face the consequences of sin. Why? Because we're all made in the, in the image of God. Why? Because we all have choice. And what do we do with choice? We do the very same thing that Adam and Eve did with choice. We have a penchant for making the wrong one, right? And it starts, you know, from the beginning, and, and, there, and there you go, right? And, uh, and so hiding from God is what happens. And it is so important uh, for us to remember that God, just like God did not give up on Adam and Eve, as we'll see, he actually, even in this passage, brings deliverance to them in the strangest way, but he brings deliverance to them. So God will never let us go. So you may be hiding from God, you may be here today and smiling and praising the Lord and all kinds of things, but down deep inside, hiding from God. You know, perhaps there is some sin that, that uh, gnaws away at you, some maybe temptation that uh, in the darkness of night you uh, fall to, but to God, everything, God, everything is light. Uh, God has no problem seeing in the dark, Right? Uh, and, uh, and perhaps, in many ways, you're hiding from God. But recognize, he's not looking to condemn them. He's looking for them to confess. Where are you? In other words, where are you? Is Where are you? To me, there, there's a sense here of, I'm looking for you. Where are you? Not, okay. You know, when I was a little kid, and I'm sure you can all relate to this, uh, one day... I, uh, me and one of my cousins was playing in the living room, the forbidden area, the forbidden zone uh, of, of, the, of the house. And we were, you know what we were doing? We were doing the very, we were pushing each other around and, you know, and doing all those kinds of things, right? So we knocked over, not only were we in the forbidden room, but we knocked over a forbidden lamp. Oh, wow, right? And it just so happened that my father was returning home from work and I could hear the garage door opening, right? So I did what anybody would do. I went and hid under my bed, <laughs> right? And, and so I hear him come up and I hear my mother and my father talking in both English and Yiddish. <laughs> Not a good sign, right? 
Uh, and then I see, I'm under my bed, I can see my father's feet, <laughs> right? And I heard those famous words, Howard Ross Silverman, where are you hiding, right? That was a different where are you from here, okay? This was, where are you? I'm looking for you, okay? Remember that. You know, it's interesting because this relates also to our, um, our um, Torah portion. Yes, the, to the Torah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, right. This is the message. That's, okay. From the Torah portion uh, in, uh, you know, in Exodus, right? This is the golden calf Torah portion, right? The, and as you know, there's a lot more than the golden calf uh, in this Torah portion. But uh, usually... You know, when, when I ask in a Torah study, what is the sin that kept the Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years? Nine times out of 10, someone is going to say the golden calf. And that was not it, right? That was not it, right? Uh, so you have the golden calf. Moses comes down, he breaks the, you know, the, the Ten Commandments. And, uh, uh, you know, God is going to do away with everybody and start over with Moses. Moses says, what will the Egyptians think, you know? Don't do that. And of course, that whole dialogue is there so that we might understand what the people deserved and the grace of God that they received, right? Uh, but as a result, first, God says, okay, you take them on the journey uh, and go to Eretz Israel." And basically, what does, God, does Moses say in plain English? If you're not going, we're not going, okay? Uh, and then God says, okay. But now a change takes place, hence the Levites. Now Israel is a nation with priests. Now there is a tabernacle. Now the people have to be separated from a God. Uh, you know, uh, oh, I sense a tangent coming on, but it's okay. When you read at the end of the Ten Commandments about how the people are supposed to approach God, you'll notice everybody can approach God. Build an altar out of, uh, out of mud, out of the dirt, right? And, and bring an offering. That's a far cry from a golden lampstand uh, and all of the ornate uh, uh, building of the tabernacle and all of the precious stone that the altar is made out of and all of the rules and the regulations uh, of a small group of people who are able to actually approach God on behalf of all the people. A change has taken place. And so now I, I, Israel is one step farther removed from the presence of God. Yet, God does not abandon them. And that indeed is the point. God does not abandon them. He loves them so much that he, he creates a way for him to travel with them that they're all not going to drop dead because of unholiness. And so God always finds a way to be present in the midst of his people. We have the tabernacle, then we have the temple, and we have Yeshua. And so uh, we are able to enter through a new and living way, as we read about in the book of Hebrews, right? Uh, and that is through his blood, the blood of Yeshua. Uh, and so uh, God always provides a way for us to uh, have fellowship with him because we sin, see? And so if you have received Messiah into your life and you sin, don't think of yourself as, well, 
I'm, you know, forget about me. It's a lost cause. No, run to him. Run to him because we read that when we confess our sins, he forgives us and he cleanses us. Forgives us, but doesn't put us in a box. He forgives us and cleanses us. We're restored to him because he desires to have fellowship with us. There is no sin that is greater than the grace of God. You can't outsin the grace of God. See? However, if you have the attitude of, well, it doesn't matter then what I do, that is a, uh, that is um, um, a, um, uh, yes, a distortion. Thank you. A distortion of the truth. That is not the truth. That is a distor- that's a distortion of the truth. Uh, to the point where you wonder if the truth is in us if we have that attitude. But if we have the attitude of, I have sinned and now I am guilty, guilt is like pain. You need pain to know where it hurts, where, it's, where, where you need to be fixed, right? right? You've heard me tell the story of the guy who came to the con- congregation, not here, elsewhere, uh, who became very angry uh, with us uh, because we served coffee after the service. Right? You've heard me tell this story, right? right? Why was he angry? Uh, he says, do you, do you serve coffee? And I said, yes, thinking he wants a cup of coffee. Then he says, how can you serve coffee here? Thinking, what is the problem? What could be the problem? Right? It's a narcotic. And I'm trying to be sinless. And if you drink coffee, you're sinning because you're taking narcotics. Wow. Talk about a distortion of the truth. Right? You know, we had our elders take him out back, uh, take care of him, and, you know, it was all worked out. But uh, no, actually, it turned out that was a great teaching moment for that individual. It really was a tremendous moment for that individual. But you cannot hide from God. We, we do sin, but we cannot hide from God, and he wa- he's looking for us. Okay, so we see here, uh, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So not only uh, the first uh, consequence, hiding from God, the second consequence, fear, fear, afraid. I was afraid of you. Okay, That comes from guilt and shame, not uh, understanding the glory of God and understanding who God is, but rather being fearful, right? We know that God does not give us fear when we embrace Yeshua. Uh, Again, it is a distortion of who God is if we sin and we are afraid of of Him. Now, it's one thing to, um, you know, I don't want to suffer... uh, uh, you know, we don't want to displease God. Uh, there is a holy kind of fear, a holy kind of reverence. But, you know, going back to the illustration of my own self and the notorious lamp story, at no point was I ever afraid of my father. I mean, afraid, like, oh no, he's, you know, he's going to beat me up. No, I was afraid of the consequences of what I had done, you know, uh, but I was not afraid in the, like, fearing for my life, that kind of fear. So it's important for us to 
uh, you know, maybe uh, split those hairs a little bit in this, in this context, okay? Uh, and uh, because God, I will tell you, God is always looking for, think about the parable. Yeshua tells the parable of the prodigal son, right? Uh, and without going into all the details, when you read that carefully, you see that the father is like standing out there looking for that son to come home, right? And the son sheepishly returns home and the father embraces him, embraces him and says, let's have a celebration, right? And so, uh, so important not to be afraid of God in that sense, that we must hide from a God. We should always have awe and reverence for God. You know, that should motivate us to worship him well, to love him, to serve him, but not to run like, you know, uh, we're on a street and there's somebody out there that's chasing us and we got to hide. No, that is a distortion, you know. Um, it, you know, I have a little book somewhere, somewhere on earth called uh, Tell Yourself the Truth. It's a great little book, Tell Yourself the Truth. And what it means is to, uh, when we do that self-talk kind of stuff, not to... Uh, back up the dump truck and tell ourselves truths that people have told us maybe about God or ourselves, but what is really true about ourselves and really true about God. And so it is really true that he seeks us who are lost. And when we're found, he always desires to bring, you know, healing and restoration, redemption to us. Now, we may uh, despise ourselves, and that's an issue too. Who are we to despise ourselves if God loves us this much? See? And so we need to see ourselves as created in the image and likeness of God. And we need to see ourselves as people um, uh, of whom God lavishes his love. And part of that love is sometimes suffering the consequences of sin, the, what, what happens in our lives, but when it comes to God, he is always looking for us and always desiring of receiving us. Now, we will see that, that we do suffer consequences of the actions, but God's love for us never changes or diminishes. God continued to love these people even though they had to face the consequences of their actions. Okay? Now, so we see, I heard the sound in verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, and because I was, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so, still, I, uh, the man, nor the woman, has actually confessed. Uh, they're saying they're afraid because of my self-understanding. I'm naked, and so I hid. Okay, uh, And now God says, how did you know you were naked? So in other words, now, as we said, the man and the woman before the sin are not centered on themselves. Now we see that they are all about themselves. And the response that the man gives is about himself. I was naked and I hid. And now God asks a question. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Notice carefully what the man says. The woman whom you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. 
And we might as well jump in in verse 13 also. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what uh, has happened now uh, is that rationalization becomes the word of the day. They rationalize what they've done. They basically give a reason why they ate. Neither of these is a confession of sin. But let me explain to you what happened. I am the victim here, okay? I am the victim. Look, she enticed me, and so I ate. That serpent, he enticed me, so I ate. Giving a reason, explaining why, you know, uh, rationalizing. This is, this is what happened, right? And so isn't this just so much the paradigm of us, of us? Absolutely, okay? Uh, and so he blames her, she blames the serpent, okay? Uh, now, uh, now, the, now God speaks uh, uh, to, the, uh, to the serpent, okay? Notice he never asks the serpent anything. He doesn't say, and so, what's your excuse, right? No, so that's kind of interesting that he uh, converses with the human beings, but he does not converse with the animal, okay? Uh, uh, God is looking, he was looking for the man and the woman. He wasn't looking for the serpent. He wasn't looking for the snake. He was looking for the man and the woman. He's concerned about where they are. The broken fellowship is with the man and the woman. People are not animals. And that is uh, an important lesson here. All right. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than any beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. So the first thing we see is, is uh, that the, uh, the uh, snake uh, is cursed. Okay? Uh, and then when it says, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your, of your life. Uh, what, we are, uh, what we are seeing here is what God is saying, you, will be, you are humiliated. You, uh, that that uh, eating dust, licking dust, is very interesting. Uh, in the Bible, it is a euphemism for humiliation and defeat. Okay? This was not written in order for us to ask the question, did snakes originally walk? All right? Uh, that, I will say, is uh, that's right up there with the burning question on, of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, uh, all right? I, uh, the idea is the people who first read this saw snakes crawling on the ground and are recognizing that evil is humiliated. Evil is humiliated. Eating dust is a statement of, of humiliation. We won't take the time to turn to all of them. Uh, you can look them up. Okay, about licking dust. Micah 7, 17 is a good one. Uh, but the point is to see that God has the last word. And remember that 
what I said about snakes at the beginning of, of this portion. They were viewed as having all kinds of mystical powers. Powers of healing, powers of evil, right? God is, uh, God is not at the mercy of, of the snake. God is not at the mercy of the serpent. God uh, uh, is the one who judges. God is more powerful than the serpent. And so he judges the serpent uh, in, in this way. You are humiliated. You will not have victory. Evil does not win. Okay? Uh, and, and that speaks volumes uh, to us. Uh, perhaps better than asking if snakes originally walked, maybe it might be a better uh, question to ask is, wow, uh, why am I fearful if God is, has judged the enemy? If God has judged evil, then why am I fearful? See? Okay? So we should be encouraged at this. Now it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. There is a ton of uh, questions about this verse, but I will just say, for our purposes here, perhaps in a course on Genesis, maybe go into greater detail, but just to say here, that one thing we see is people are generally speaking, people generally speaking, don't like snakes, right? Right, like on planes. Right? Right. Uh, and elsewhere, right? We don't like snakes, right? If there was a snake slithering right down the center here, would we be happy? No, right? And so there seems to be this natural enmity, okay, uh, between uh, snakes and people. Now, one thing I will say about that that we don't usually think about is, do you know how in Isaiah passages you read about the wolf and the lamb hanging out together, right? Uh, and how people and animals are going to get along. A little child, you know, will be with the lion and all that. So when the big consummation comes, there will not be enmity between animals and people. There's not going to be an enmity between animals and people. There is now. And what's interesting, I think, about this, and it's just something to think about, that part of the judgment here is enmity between people, at least here, and snakes. I, I Just taking it at face value. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and, and her seed. So just in terms of a serpent, of a snake, we see a judgment on the animal, okay? And between your seed and her seed. Now, what's interesting there is the Hebrew for her seed that doesn't really go, Right? Because the seed doesn't come from a woman. It's kind of an odd statement to see in the scripture, her seed. You don't see that, okay? It should be his seed, not her seed, right? Uh, and so perhaps an allusion to uh, the coming of the Messiah, you know? I would not call this a messianic prophecy, all right? I would not call this a messianic prophecy. But it kind of points in a direction that a human being is going to come and ultimately defeat the evil. That a human, that there will be someone, maybe a king, a servant, ultimately someone from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, you know, come and will crush, bruise, or crush him on the head, right? Uh, but he shall bruise, but you shall bruise him on the heel. 
right? And, uh, and so uh, that is rather interesting, that, that, that whole thing. I think what it tells us is here is this is the first statement of some kind of good news after the sin, that there will be some, something will happen after the sin that where there will be defeat of this enemy, okay? But, you know, just to be honest with the text, you can make a case that there are some people who say it's just talking about snakes, and other people say it's just talking about Yeshua, the Messiah, and there you go, bam, right? Well, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle of that, that it's talking about, uh, you know, the uh, just on face value, talking about the serpent, but it certainly points forward to the redemption uh, that God will indeed provide. And when, jumping ahead to chapter 4, when it says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Well, that's a whole very, that's a very interesting phrase all the way around. But perhaps Eve is thinking, I have gotten now a child to bring, like, a, you know, a savior. So it'll be very interesting, that just that, that sentence. So uh, th- there you go. The, the serpent uh, is, uh, you know, is alienated uh, and ultimately defeated. Uh, but now... When we come to uh, verse 16 and 17, we see here, to the woman, he says, see, he does not curse the woman. He does not curse the woman, nor does he curse the man. He curses the ground because of the man. Okay? Uh, And he does does not send them into, uh, you know, a, a, um, a, a perpetual alienation. Very important. Like the, like the serpent. Okay? He says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so what is he saying here? He talks here specifically about the blessing of of, uh, having being fruitful and multiplying. And what he is saying is that I'm not taking it away, but it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult. Now the blessing that was to be just simply all, you know, uh, marvelous, wonderful, now is going to be difficult. I'm not taking away the blessing, but it's going to be difficult. Okay? All right. Uh, Now, when he says here, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you, uh, as my friend Michael Rydelnik likes to say about this little passage here, this is the reason for marriage counseling. (laughs) Right there. Okay, uh, and you know I've said this before that the very same two words, desire and rule in Hebrew, are used in the very same verse in chapter four when God is confronting Cain, uh, and uh, and you read in verse seven, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Okay. So sin's desire is for a king to overtake him, right? But you must master it, like control it, subdue it, right? That is exactly what you see, you see here when it says, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's part of the, 
It's part of the consequences of sin. This, is, this little part is not taken out to say, oh, see, that's um, a model for marriage. No. Uh, it is, yet, you, yet your desire will be for your husband, yet, yet he shall dominate you. Ultimately, see, this is where, in other words, because of the sin, because of wanting to be like God, in a way they become like God, in the sense that now they make their own choices. Now they become the master of their own selves. And what ends up happening? It's a total train wreck. And now what happens is the blessings become difficult. Relationship, bearing children becomes difficult. The relationship of husband and wife becomes difficult. It doesn't take it away, but it becomes difficult. And then to the man, he says, to Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I have commanded you, saying, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, and from it you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wow. So what we see here is that the man is not cursed, but the ground is. And now, rather than cultivating, keeping, and this joyous experience of the man and the woman and being fruitful and multiplying, it's one big tsuris, one big headache now. It becomes difficult to have children. It becomes difficult to have a good marriage. It becomes difficult to till the ground. None of it is impossible. It is all the desire of God. But this is what sin does. It messes up everything. It messes up human relationship. It messes up a child, uh, you know, having children in an easy fashion. Uh, and work becomes difficult. And so all of that translates into the way the world is, you see. And notice also, you see here, by the sweat of your face, uh, by, so you're going to have to work really hard. Originally, it was not to be this way, see? And notice, he says, it's going to be this way all the way till you die. Well, now all of a sudden, dying uh, is mentioned. You're going to return to dust, okay? Uh, and all of this as a result of, of, the, uh, of the sin, all right? Well, I just want to say one more thing here. So now you see, um, now, verse 20. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Chava. Chava. Okay? Uh, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God provides for them. Now, they're, now, because of their sin, we have to live with the consequences of the sin, but God does not do away with them. God does not make it a lost cause. God provides a way for them to be able to, with now the presence of sin, he provides a way for them to be able to live in this world. And so he provides, the, he, in a way he condescends to their need. He doesn't hate them now, but he provides for them the, uh, what they need to be able to live well. Okay? They don't have to hide. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now, it's interesting. Evidently, that's not such a good thing. And so, therefore, perhaps it's not wise for us to be as independent as possible. Uh, it is not wise for us to want to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we as human beings can't handle it. We can't handle it. We end up sinning. That is why it is a much safer place to obey God than to simply go with our emotions and our senses and our rationalizations and then make choices because then life can be a train wreck. So he says, now and now let he lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, be in a state of perpetual sin forever and have no hope ever of it going back to the way it's supposed to be. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see here at the end of the chapter, God does something which seemingly is such a heartbreaker, right? They have to leave the garden, which is in Eden. And now they have to, they're going to cultivate the ground and live now in this state of alienation, you know, where it's difficult to alienate it from the ground, alienated from people, uh, and alienated from God, always having now to deal with issues of sin and hiding and, and difficult relationships and difficulty around, right? But by taking them out of the garden and keeping them from eating from the tree of life, he is redeeming them. He is saving them from, from no hope forever. And sometimes... In our own lives, when we sin, we suffer consequences and we suffer some form or shape of one of these consequences. But remember this, that God never leaves us or forsakes us. He never left Adam and Eve. They had to leave the presence of tranquility because of their sin. But God never left them. And in order to redeem them and all of humanity, they had to leave the Garden of Eden. And so perhaps we have been in a place where we are brought low. Let us not think for a moment that God's desire is to keep us low. But no, it's always for the purpose of redemption, for the purpose of growth. He is always involved in our lives. Whatever life brings us, may it, if it's a consequence of our own sin or by extension, the sin, sins that we all become we, we all become partakers of. You know, we were not there in the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, but we all suffer the consequences of, of that sin. Regardless, and even by our own volition when we sin, recognize that God is always saying, where are you? God always wants us to return. God will indeed forgive us. He does make the clothes for the man and the woman to wear. And he does provide a place for them to live. And he does provide for them other children. And he does provide a, uh, a testimony of a toldot, of a genealogy that becomes a very key element in the book of Breshit. That it is not the end of man. No, there is Seth who will ultimately be born. 
and then there will be a Noah, and then there will be an Abraham, an Isaac, and a Jacob, and a Judah, and a David, and Yeshua. God does provide, and this is the beginning, the very beginnings of his provision. By removing them from the place where they would be perpetually lost uh, forever. Yes, we have to face the consequences of sin, but God will never leave us or forsake us. And so now we see what happens when they sin. We see their consequences, the consequences upon humanity. But we know that uh, that uh, the one who is cursed is the snake. And we know that ultimately there will be one who indeed will come, who will indeed overtake the evil. And thank the Lord, we are living in days when the Messiah has come. And, uh, you know, he has, we have been removed from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And, uh, and we, uh, in Messiah, uh, uh, dwell in victory, right? In Messiah. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And may we never indeed forget. Let us not wallow in the alienation, but recognize that we have been reconciled. We have been reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to humanity. We have been reconciled to this world. And that gives us a tremendous message uh, of hope for uh, this alienated world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that... You created Adam and Eve and mankind in your own image. And Lord, thank you that you did not do away with them. While the image becomes tarnished, Lord, the image never stops being the image of God. But Lord, thank you in this we can see why the world is the way it is. But also where the hope of redemption is. Lord, thank you that you have opened up our eyes. That we do not have to wallow uh, in the alienation, but you have reconciled us. And uh, Lord, may we be a testimony of real life in real time consequences of that reconciliation by the way we interact with the world, with you and one another. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Yeshua's name.